back! We're back! It's a distraction! I'm true! That's Roth! Hi, Roth! Pretty good, man. How are you? I'm good! Any amusing recent mishaps to do with the recording of the podcast that you think no. our listeners might enjoy? No, my microphone! My microphone didn't accidentally come unplugged when we first tried to do this take. So, uh, no, everything's fine. Because I'm you perfect. were rocking too hard. Because I you were was. getting after it too much. You know what? I was talking sports and really going at it as hard as I could, and yeah. it turns out that was a mistake. It turns out that one thing could get by them. That's <laughs> right. <laughs> Go ahead and try me. This <laughs> this week, our guest is Jason Gay of the Wall Street Journal. He's back, and he's got a new book called I Wouldn't Do That If I Were Me. It's out right now, this instant. Oh, my God. How you doing, Jason? Congrats on the book, man. Hey, man. Hey, I appreciate it. I, and and uh, David said it uh, in the uh, failed intro that we did a moment ago, but congrats on the 300th episode. You know, if this is in fact the 300th. No, it's just kind of... So what else do you have for It sure. sort of feels like the 300. I don't know, 125 or something like that for this show. I have show. a question. When you guys moved to do your own thing with Defector and Distraction... Did you, was it like one of those Letterman things where there's IP at the old shop that you can't use on the air with your, you know, from your prior uh, iterations of the podcast? I actually don't think Stitcher bought like the back catalog of they the didn't. podcast, but we didn't it, it, care. It's available. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's I think out it's there. still. Make, uh, make Jim Spanfeller an offer on that. I'm sure that you could get a competitive price. Uh, the one thing that we do, Drew like owns all of his ideas and stuff. So we don't have to like rename the mailbag portion of the podcast because that IP belongs to, you know, Univision Omnicorp or whatever, which is good. Like, cause if we had to like, if I couldn't say let's remember a guy and I had to be like, why don't we recall some fellows? I think everybody would Wait. be kind of sad about it. What? All right. Well, clarify, but Drew, is that just some incredibly like prescient like contract writing on your behalf that you put in writing that they couldn't like like William Sonoma, for example, was yours? Yeah. So actually, it, the backstory to it is that in the summer of 2019, uh, it was 2019, I was uh, given an offer by the then. Uh, editor-in-chief of Sports Illustrated to come to Sports Illustrated, leave to Deadspin right. for that. So I said, okay, because money. And they, he said to me, you know, I, I was like, can I bring all my stuff? He's like, yeah, sure. Just go, you want, you would want to copyright it so that you own it so that neither your boss is there or or our bosses at SI can can own it and you can own it. And I was like, oh, okay. So I plunked down the 1500 bucks or whatever to trademark why your team sucks, fun bag, and Jamboree. Those were the terms that I that I did, and so I trademarked all of them. And then, like when that that offer fell through because that EIC ended up getting shit canned by like the guy who runs SI now. And then, mm -hmm. so then when I left Deadspin, like I said to prospective employers, I was like, "Oh, by the way, I own all of my IP," <laughs> and they didn't give a fuck. <laughs> were like, I was like, "I spent that money for nothing." Just have you have you have you ever made a claim on someone for using the language <laughs> no. in another piece? Like sent like a very stern cease and desist, yeah, cease from, and a, desist. from a white shoe <laughs> law firm. It, it called looks like you're Roth applying throwgasms to this week's NFL slate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no. Hear from my attorneys. But by God, I can't <laughs> wait to do it. But enough talking about me, Jason. We have to talk about you and your book. It's a memoir uh, about raising yeah. your son. 
right as the pandemic hit, I'm not going to make you summarize your book here, Jason, because I know that's like a lot of like stuff you have to do when you do the radio car wash. But could you tell us, um, how'd you make it out of that particular parenting gauntlet alive? Because it's hard enough to have uh, children, but then to do it, I had, you know, my children were, were a bit older during the pandemic, so it wasn't that, it, it sucked, but it wasn't the same as having like a child child. Does that make sense? Yeah, I, I mean, and I've got two. I have a nine and a seven. So they were what, seven and five when this started. And the the real uh, jackpot was my wife is a school teacher. Oh my God. So she was of no use. I'll say it right here. Uh, no, she had to teach her own classes and deal with her own crises and deal with her own remote school. And so I was the person scurrying between all this. Like, look, I, I thought you were going to ask me at the top, like, how the hell do you sell a humor book about the pandemic? And the the the, the question, the, the the truth of it is that you don't, because publishers aren't terribly interested in like pandemic anything. In fact, it was such a radioactive concept to like get into with any kind of conversation about a book. But the reality is that you know. When you have just all this incredible life change happening, you know, and this is none of it is to diminish the serious shit that was happening everywhere. Um, it's fertile topic. It's just stuff that like, you know, even now, like when we feel like you can't read yet another piece about quiet quitting or work from home or whatever it is, <laughs> quiet it's still this like seismic shift in the way that we live i mean we compressed what ordinarily would be like 20 years of like cultural shift into like 18 months and yeah i don't know it just seemed funny to me yeah i mean it's it is both funny and not funny like there's so obviously so much there i mean like i think it, it makes sense to me like it's weird that you know obviously i'm would rather you write a funny book than not write a funny book and yet when you were saying that i uh, about how publishers respond to this stuff, there was a part of me that was kind of like, oh yeah, I get that. Like nobody's looking to sure. relive that shit. You know, like it's the same thing I think with any of the, you know, real kind of, because I do think there are a bunch of things that have happened, you know, basically starting 2015-ish or even going back to like the economic collapse at the, you know, at the very beginning of the Obama presidency that this is like, we've had like a generation worth of shit packed into you know, 12, 15 years, which I guess is like, you know, more or less a generation. It's like a couple of extra years mm -hmm. worth of stuff. Mm -hmm. And none of it is the sort of thing that I'm especially keen to like relive. Like, especially, you know, whatever, like Trumpy stuff. Like I, you know, paid my bills writing about that during the period between when we left Deadspin and when we started Defector. I don't want to write about him anymore. I don't want to think about that shit anymore. And I don't understand people that necessarily want to continue to read about him. Just like picking that scab endlessly. Like, I, I get it and I don't. I mean, I think with this sort of stuff, I guess for you, the question I have is, like, what made you want to go back and relive this? Like, obviously, readers, you can't control what people are going to want or what they're not going to want. Was it just that it was, like, so unpleasant as it was happening that you were like, this is actually something I should be writing about? No, it's more basic than that. Like, just as a newspaper columnist, I'm just an abject narcissist. And this was the <laughs> biggest thing, like, happening in my life, really. I mean, I'm not being glib about that. That's the truth. I mean, if I wasn't going to write about that, what was I going to write about? You know, I was trying to kick. I mean, I hadn't written a book in, in five years. And I was kicking around a bunch of different ideas. I had certainly come up with ideas before this. And this was the one that stuck because, again, there's just enough to chew on. And 
you know, I, I don't, I want to emphasize it's not just like a pandemic book and there's not like, you know, pages and pages of like mask jokes and like stuff like right, that. It's, right. What <laughs> the deal? Yeah. Isn't it crazy? You know, do, do you remember that there was a movie that got made like sort of in the first like eight months of the pandemic, with like Anne Hathaway and it was called like Lockdown or something yeah. like that? Oh, wait, like, was that the Michael Bay movie or is that something different? No, there, this That's one something was like different. literally a movie about two people in quarantine it was like an attempt at a rom-com but i think it featured zoom very heavily yeah 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 dark no and it was like we had a director and two actors and that was it and uh, yeah uh it's not that um you know i remember having conversations during the gestation of the book saying like you know you do want to be able to look back on this 30 years from now and be like did we cover this? Did we discuss this? Did we like commemorate it? I'm with you that I'm too close to it to kind of want to do, drill down and do it all the time now. And I certainly feel that way about the way the politics have gone. I mean, I think the political aspect of it too is also like, it has become such a cottage industry so clearly for a sector of the media that like, I'm just like, let them have it. Like, let them kick it. Like it just, I, I, I check out of it because I can't, I feel like all the jokes have been made, all the takes have been taken, and it just feels completely banal at this point. Yeah, I always have that feeling This of somebody in my neighborhood. It's one person. I actually saw them doing it the other day. More or less what you'd expect. Like, they looked like one of the, um, they were all, like, swaddled. This person just writes uh, anti-vax stuff on every poster that is up, you know, so they'll p- apply an ad to, like, the sort of construction facing and it'll a be worthy like pursuit yeah. it'll be like zendaya and then like this person will write coming out of their mouth like i got the vaccine and now i have aids <laughs> <laughs> it's like and there's that's a true. part of me that's, that's kind story. of like i mean the person i've seen enough of their work uh to be like all right so you're just a troubled person who's like got this hobby horse but at this point it's like as you move through this city where people are are you know for better and worse moving on there's a part of me that's like, you're still on that. Like, you're still, like, worried about right. the fact that, like, I'm going to turn into a 5G hotspot because I got <laughs> shot at the Javits Center 18 months ago. Like, that's so your you're saying concern. that you're in, like, you know, I don't know, the Carroll Street stop and there's a uh, Nets season tickets poster with Joe Harris and there's a thought bubble coming out of his head. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> it's still, and that's, like, that, I guess, is, like, the level that we're at at this point. This person also, like, the other thing is that they have, as with all crazy people, there's, like, 10 or 15% of what they say it seems correct to me. So when there's, like, the thing that goes up and it's, like, new construction going here and it's a rendering of the building. And, like, a lot of the stuff that they write is insane. And then part of it is kind of, like, we spent $3 trillion on war, but we don't. I'm just, like, yeah, she's she's got a point about that part, about the war thing. (laughs) I don't know about the thing where I'm going to get AIDS from my booster, but... (laughs) <laughs> I uh, I want to go back for a second, Jason, because uh, one thing I wanted to note is that you and I have something in common with regards to the pandemic, which is that the last sporting event we attended prior to the pandemic, uh, both of us went to auto races, <laughs> and you went you went with your son to uh, the Daytona 500. I went to Formula One testing in Barcelona in February oh, of 2020. Wow. wow, which was wow, which was very cool and right under the wire. But going to Florida strikes me as even more dangerous right before the pandemic than going to Europe would have been. Uh, not to mention, you remember who came out and said, gentlemen, start your engines. Oh, was, it, was, it, was it a prominent Floridian? 
<laughs> oh, was it been in the, the news? It was the president of the United States. Oh, uh, we love him. We love we so love him. It, He's so fun. It, dub- it doubled as this campaign rally, and I think it was my son's first exposure to like that just mania. I don't, th- you know, like. I'm talking about like the mania on top of the the Trump mania on top of the NASCAR media. NASCAR and Daytona is its own insane thing. And then you added this political element of it. Super crazy. Um, Yeah, no, I mean, I did feel, Drew, and I don't know if you felt the same way about your uh, fancy F1 performance testing, but I felt like if you were going to say goodbye to society for a couple of years, this is a nice way to go out. This is the blaze of glory, Daytona 500, you know? Did your ears survive that race? Because I did go to another, I went to the Phoenix 500, Mm. and this was before I went deaf, but being deaf, uh, even even now, like, I I think that was probably one of the worst hearing experiences of, of my life, being on the infield of the Phoenix 500, having just fucking engines just butt fucking my what ears did, for three hours did you have any protection no no it was a oh, i was like because oh. i was a journalist i was like i i was i was on assignment for penthouse magazine uh <laughs> and i was like with the red bull team and i was chugging red bulls offered by the red bull team and i was like this is fine and then like by 2 p.m i was like i'm going to die <laughs> your heart was beating at the oh, speed of like yes. uh, hummingbirds yep. and also you couldn't hear it. anything I've never been in the infield for like a NASCAR thing, but I did go to a, uh, a motocross event uh, a handful of years ago. Uh, uh, not for Penthouse. Um, Shame. But uh, you were covering it for oh. Gent. <laughs> <laughs> it was for Swank. <laughs> Let's remember some porn. Wasn't there one called We? There was. Oh, you yeah. better believe. We had <laughs> all of summer camp at this time, but yeah. we had We High Society Velvet, all the good shit. Just Jason, stand. move it on. Yep. Um, the uh, anyway, so the, the the supercross thing was the loudest thing that I ever been at, at, and you know, even any kind of like ear protection, earbuds, anything, there was nothing that was going to just, you know, it sh- was shaking femurs in your legs and like you know your bones inside your body. You just felt those rattling. It just was, yeah, it was disturbing. Um, and Daytona, though, they really make it pretty clear that you have to have cans on and also if you're bringing a little kid with you they really admonish you to make sure that you have ear protection for them because you know they're the future Did people do it people like actually are wearing those in the stands and stuff. oh yeah i would say most people are and and in addition to that there are a lot of people who will buy um these like contraptions where they can listen to the various channels of the various teams. So they're wearing these cans, but they also have this little transmitter next to them where they can flip between the various teams and listen to the pit crews. Oh, that's cool. So they can hear like Ricky Bobby going shake and bake. Yeah. I like that though. That actually seems like (laughs) a cool thing. Right. And you'll be like, Oh, what happened to Stenhouse? And they'll be like, well, let me tell you, you know, like they know, you know, so that, you know, they were the, the, the gossips and the, and the other thing that really threw me, this was my first Daytona trip. You don't really watch the race except in the far turn. That's really all you can kind of watch yeah. because they just go by so fast. That's just useless. So you wait for the race to go around the far turn, which necessitates sitting as high as possible. The nice seats are as high as possible at Daytona. If you get a seat down by the track, that's for donkeys yeah. because you can't see anything. That's like you'll so also, you get like a flying muffler in your throat. If you 
That was I like mean, a, and that nearly Dan happened. Dan yeah. Snyder uh, tried to like that. I think is generally true with like a lot of sporting events, not like baseball or whatever. But I remember Dan Snyder trying to sell the seats that were like basically where you're like trying to look over the head of the defensive coordinator. They're like at the field level, and those had not been like sold or whatever. And he labeled them the dream seats and tried to mark them up <laughs> and stuff like that. And everybody's like, "This sucks." Like I'm, just, I'm just looking at Alex Smith's ass the entire game. That's all I can see. <laughs> yeah. Would you? Although I also like, I, I hate the seeing the. Um, I feel the most embarrassing seats in sports are the ones where you see the Dolphins. I think were the first to pioneer this. Where like, there's like giant barca loungers behind yeah. the field goal, and the you know like, yeah. like you're just sitting there like you're at home, like that. You have like ESPN zone over. seats. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That is kind of embarrassing, too. That's like the sort of... It, every time I see people sitting there, I'm like, oh, this person can't... Like, they will not sit in a seat that doesn't recline. I see what's going on here. They're like, yeah. sitting in a stadium seat for two and a half hours is like, simply cannot be done. Not for an ass this luxurious. There will be times at home where I'm like, if I'm watching an exciting football game, I will not mention the one that I just watched. And <laughs> and I'm like recli- in the recliner and I'm reclined back. I will think to myself... This is not appropriate. You need to sit up or you need to stand up. Right. And then <laughs> I the game, get, Gary. Then I get up as if I am at the stadium and I start I thought, doing the fist pump, all that shit. I thought for like a Vikings game, you might have like a handmade wooden bench that you sit down on for games and that just doesn't give you any kind of comfort, right? <laughs> I do. You like, I, I have the, uh, the coach pacing down where you like, you fold your arms and you just sort of like, you're just sort of patrol. You're just sort of stalking like a sideline that does not exist. Like you're just stalking just in front a of the television. That isn't attached to anything. Yeah, or I would, maybe like I need to get a pair of cans that I can throw to the ground and just treat like absolute <laughs> shit. Or maybe like the uh, the like the Shashevsky stool, like like they have. Yeah. Oh, that's right. Yep. That's right. It's designed it's for maximum discomfort, like a stress position that you need to be in so that you can stay at that level on the edge where you need to be. It would be funny if, like, there was some dude who had a man cave and, like, you know, he has all the usual man cave bullshit in it, you know, a bar and the beer mirrors and all that. But he also had a Gatorade cooler that he could, like, dump on himself. Yep. I was thinking when you were talking about the having cans to throw down, the idea of you just going through, like, a dozen Microsoft surfaces a season because you're constantly spiking it or discarding it or, like, disdainfully handing it to your child. It's like... Well, you know they really do it because they're free. Like, they're yeah. not going to have to pay for the surf. They got that shitty surface for free, so they're like, fuck this piece of shit. Because that's what someone would do if they were given a Microsoft Surface, yeah. like, out in the ether. You know what I mean? It is funny that that's... I mean, that could be a supercut at this point, the Microsoft Surface Touch. I yeah. Mean, uh, uh, yep. a, a Chuck. All yeah. that people do is see them get abused. Uh, in other news, uh, Jason... I just saw this now. It's Dipshit Owner Week here at The Distraction. That's right. Every uh, year, starting now, we have Dipshit Owner Week. uh, Because I wanted to talk about, first of all, Jim Ursay, who fired Mm. his coach, Frank Reich, last week, replaced him with Jeff Goddamn Saturday, and won. And not only did they win, but they won, like, endearingly so. So how concerned should I be, Jason Gay, that Jim Ursay actually was playing 3D chess and that when he tweets out who you crap and like he's actually making sense when he does that. I don't think he should be concerned in the slightest. Okay. In fact, okay. I feel this is the biggest like exploding cigar in uh, you know recent NFL history. Like I cannot believe the end zone dance these guys are doing after like beating the lowly Raiders, you know, uh scraping by them. In fact, I mean like 
it, it's crazy to me. It's like, what was proved? I mean, like, what was proven? I, I Listen, I mean, Saturday seems to be a smart, charismatic individual, but at no level, like, I just feel like oftentimes in sports, we need to put things through the prism of reality, like what our own lives are like. If someone were like interjected into your workplace who had never had any experience like managing your workplace, oh, you've been through that. Oh, yeah. Uh, Paul Maidman? You talking about Paul Maidman? It's like we should have a, like a Twitter engineer call in to build this <laughs> yeah. one for us. <laughs> um, no, yeah, exactly. It's all the rage. Um, but I just, you know, I, uh, one game is not uh, causation correlation here for me. I do think, though, that the other side of that, which is basically that, you know, so that game, uh, you know, like the same way that, that all these teams are made up of professionals, whether they're, you know, good or not, there's a dipshit owner on the other sideline, too, you know, and I there think sure that, is, that basically what we're proving here is that, like, if we're trying to find out how bad a coach Josh McDaniels is, Losing to a guy who was on TV 72 hours before the game started doing analysis of the NFL in general, like that's the level that Josh McDaniels is at right now. It also, it killed me in the- I don't know enough about the- Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead, Jason. I was just going to say like my favorite story of this whole thing was, wasn't there an assistant who was asked to do the plays, call the plays, and he was like, "Mm, nah. Yes. (laughs) Which I love. Yeah, that's right. I love- they're like, how would you like to call your first NFL game? And the guy's like, nah, I'm not good. really. I don't think that's for me. Uh, <laughs> what, what killed <laughs> me is that what I got into coaching to do. What killed me in the postgame presser was that like all of Jeff Saturday's TV colleagues, like who are just former TV colleagues now were like, this guy's really fucking great. Like what, you know, regardless of the circumstances, he's an awesome guy. And I believe that, you know, I believe Mina Kimes when she tweets that. And then I watched the postgame presser and he was fantastic. He was like extremely in like the Mike McDaniel like vein of being like, listen, man, I'm just here to like make sure that like the players are doing the things that they can do and that the coaches like I'm not going to get in the way of the coaches being able to like coach things to the best of their abilities. Like he was like he was smart. And I was like, I need you to be like a thousand percent stupider so that I can laugh at your shit ass team and your yeah. dumb fuck owner. That's what I. Yeah, I mean, because you kind of want it to reject the, you know, the cult of coach, the opposite idea, which is the lifer who like, you know, sleeps on the couch in the office and spends 11 minutes with their family on Christmas morning. And yeah, before, like, starting off to, like that, you know, Drew, you grew up in the Gibbs era. Like that's what that was. That was all about. The oh, my God. Sacrifice. I, I fucking lionized for sleeping on a cot and never seeing his family. It is also for, like, like it's nice in some ways as somebody who really hated. I mean, I'm not even a Jets fan, but the Adam Gase experience, like this the general, like the energy of that, where it's like all of the mania, all of the like sort of psychotic diet and sleep behaviors that you associate with a coach. And yet like none of the actual good shit that presumably like follows from that obsession. Like if it's just the shape of the mania with none of the substance that fills it out. The idea that you could do it in that sort of like Mike McDaniel way where it's like you're clearly smart. You clearly get a lot of things about football and people want to play hard for you. But also you like go home and have dinner with your family every night. Like I want to believe that that's possible. I also uh, like if we're going to get a dud, I want it to be a Josh McDaniels type dud. I want a guy who is like bad energy, unpleasant to be around and also uh, poor at his job. 
I got to ask you, Jason, uh, since we're on the subject of, of Josh McDaniels, uh, Raiders owner Mark Davis, in spirit of Dipshit Owner Week, he just reaffirmed his commitment to Josh McDaniels. He's like, we're, he's not going anywhere, despite the fact that the Raiders are having just a genuinely atrocious season. So much so that like, like Derek Carr's postgame pressers are like so compelling. It's like an episode, like watching a fucking episode of The Leftovers. It's just monumentally <laughs> dramatic and wonderful. What has factored more into Mark Davis's uh, decision making here? Cheapness or idiocy? I know it's both, but which one is m more of a factor for you, Jason Gay? I think cheapness, because presumably they had to pay out Gruden to leave last year. They sure do, uh, man. And, and 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 now they have this guy signed to this big deal, and I just can't imagine having three coaches in three years. It doesn't make any sense. The joke of it is they had a coach. You know, Basacha was actually quite a good coach. Yeah. And, motivated that team and they were ready to go for him and that was the real bungle of that whole deal it's yep. funny to me that like very strong pro bisaccia podcast here uh but yeah. yes absolutely like it's incredible to me that like auburn can eat three coaching contracts simultaneously but mark davis can't right things that have like <laughs> taxpayer funds behind them where they're just sort of like we will definitely pay jimbo fisher 86 million dollars to fuck off and like and we're gonna spend that money on that instead of upgrading the electrical grid that failed like last winter and everybody's cool with us doing that let me ask you a question though like how rich do you have to be to be one of these uh donors you know so wisconsin canned its coach earlier in the year that's where i went to school and the, one of the shocking aspects of the disassociation from paul chris was that you know they did the buyout with him and they made a big point of like that it was not coming from any sort of school funding state funding so anything like that they were guy, gonna, right? they're going to independently raise the money like how rich can do you have to be to be like hey they call you up and say drew can we have 10 million because we just got to pay off the coach we just fired <laughs> like i mean like it's just amazing to me that even even somebody of extraordinary don't even notice ten million is missing wealth would go for that. Yeah, how just on principle? How like Jerry Jones or Dan Snyder hasn't like invented the NFL booster club? Like yeah, like just to find like rich guys like to just pay off like their shitty coaching contracts for them. Like I'm, I'm, sure I'm shocked that that, that would be. Happen. It's a natural idea. Like I know it's a gag, but at the same time, like all these guys want is the opportunity to like feel like big shots on the day of a football game, you know, right. to kind of like walk around and have people be like, that's Mr. You know, whatever, like Hamilton, he paid $9 million to get Brett Bielema to grow a beard. or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and, like, and that's like what I think these guys are fucking like car dealership, big shots. Like the, I mean, the other yeah. side of Jason's thing too, is like, if you had like an extra $10 million laying around and you could use it for anything, it says a lot that that's what you would use it for. That like the one that's just like, you're sick of looking at this football coach. Like you're, <laughs> right. like you're also maybe a little aware that there's like people that don't have homes in the city where you live, but that's not like, that's kind of a second order concern relative to the fact that you really want Brett Bielema to grow that beard. <laughs> well, well uh, Oh, go ahead. Well, not, not to turn this into like a, 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 a you know, Forbes sports conference, but like, this is just evidence that what college is going to eventually is a cap. I mean, they have to. They can't have 
sustainability and have a situation where some schools can raise $200 million for NIL and some schools can raise five or zero or just, it's just, you, you're going to lose all competitive balance. If anything, I mean, you've already kind of lost it already, but the reason why you can't do boosters in the NFL is that it would be a cap violation. I mean, they would do that happily, but you can't do it. So I think inevitably what college is going to have happen is the clamps will come down the same way. And then it'll be a big, like, you know, 20 years of bitching and moaning about it. Yeah. Let's uh, let's take a break and come right back with Jason Gay of the Wall Street Journal and the author of I Wouldn't Do That If I Were Me. We'll be right back. Uh, and we're back with Jason Gay. Continuing on the uh, the subject of shitty owners before we get into the, uh, the guy of the week, uh, I wanted to talk about the Houston Astros because they just let their general manager walk Ugh. right after winning yeah. a title, and they only signed Dusty Baker, their manager, on for a single extra season, uh, owner Jim Crane, he appears to have consolidated organizational power all for himself while giving more reign to former players like Jeff Bagwell and Reggie mm. Jackson to be cocks to everyone in the building, at least the latter of which was documented <laughs> by Jeff Passan of ESPN. So, Jason, are we about to see the Astros become the commanders in relatively short order? Or is Crane a ruthlessly gifted owner GM the way that like Al Davis once was? Is that possible? Uh, I don't know. Is that what's being alleged here that he's the next coming of Al Davis? I uh, well, I think it's they, what Jim Crane thinks. <laughs> it seems completely foolish to have you know turned around just in any industry to turn around and you know reward the person who has just been the architect of your or one of the architects if you're being less charitable of your championship run a one-year deal it's just absurd um and uh, you know there's a pretty demonstrated history of this kind of like idiosyncratic owner behavior and that is also being charitable i i feel bad for dusty uh, as part of it too but i just that Astros team, I feel like they have like stars on top of stars on top of stars and that there is like an entire like if they, they, they could flip a switch, remove the entire team and there would be another team ready to replace it. Like <laughs> that's what they also did. capable that's, of the World, World Series. I mean, they're just stacked beyond belief. Yeah. That's I mean, I think that the the only argument for this working to me is that the broader infrastructure is so smart and so well organized that at this point it kind of runs itself and it doesn't matter who's in charge of it. Like Crane is going to hire a guy. I think the sense that I got from the passing story is that he still pines for Jeff Luno, that he, what he wants was the old, was the 2017 version where the team was basically run as a McKinsey consulting engagement. And, uh, you know, they were great. They were brilliant in the way that they're brilliant. Now they just also (laughs) cheated and, uh, were a miserable place to work. I don't think anybody would tell you that, like James Click was a much nicer guy, but it seems like a lot of the the churn, which was like sort of in that front office, was an infamously very bad place to work uh, and a very nasty place to work in the ways that a place that kept bringing in consultants to churn out the bottom fifty percent of performers every year, which they did. That stuff like that is that's a a gross way to run an organization it can be effective it could also um destroy morale and make it bad but if you don't care about that if you're the owner then doing that sort of thing or bringing in mckinsey at all to me is a status move that it's just basically a luxury Mm. good that you can pay money for and then be like look how efficient we are i paid these guys 
$3 million to fire all of our assistant GMs and promote their underlings to that position. Well, Gabe, uh, Gabe before I let you respond to Roth, I, just, well, I want to note what I thought was the money line from Passon's article in ESPN, which was that Crane appreciated, two sources familiar with this thinking, said, the efficiency and ruthlessness of Luno's operation, seeing it was similar to how Crane ran his other businesses. So yeah. it seems to me, Jason, like it's it, it's a case of an owner seeing um, you know a bit of himself in a successful underling and wanting that replicated into infinity. Would that be more accurate? Sure. And also, I think that where owners and, you know, uh, moguls in general feel this competitive edge is in ruthlessness. And they see sort Mm -hmm. of like their talent lies in sort of being bloodless and cold when that's called for and not being the kind of person who is like paying for past performance. And, And that, of course, you know, became another aspect of how sports changed in the last couple of decades. Yeah, I mean, do you remember his sort of belligerent reaction to the whole thing with the cheating scandal and how just he was just not at all down for the theater of apology or anything like that? Yeah, the the dog should press like on the lawn, right? With the chairs and shit, right? With poor Dusty. Yeah, yeah. With Manfred there. Yeah, the whole thing. Uh. I think it's like an underappreciated text. I think about it all the time, honestly. That it is like, that it has something to do with like, Broadly speaking, the way that our politics are, the way that our culture is that like, I don't want to get too deep into it because it's like not a lot of people are going to remember Jim Crane refusing to act remotely contrite at the press conference where his team was called to account for cheating in the fucking World Series. But it is it is absolutely the the ruthlessness element, I think, is like that's a a really good point, because I don't know what kind of businessman Jim Crane is. Obviously, he made enough money to buy the Astros, so he's probably better at it than I am. But I think that. If you don't understand the hard stuff, and a lot of what the Astros do, the reason why they're so deep, the reason why the organization runs as well as it does, is that they do the hard stuff, the unglamorous stuff, incredibly well. There was a story that ran in the journal I linked to. Uh, Tim Brown wrote it. I don't think it's like a staffer there. But it was basically about how all the Astros' young pitchers were signed for like $10,000 out of the Dominican Republic because they were signed like a year or two later in their lives than the guys that are top prospects that they like, again, like the Astros front office identified not just like good talent, but an area where they could do a little arbitrage. And that's why they were able to get Christian Javier and Fran Valdez for a fraction of what they would have paid for, you know, a higher, like they literally for $10,000 than you would pay for a bigger prospect. That's there. There is a type. Yeah. But I mean, I there's a type of executive. I'm sorry. Go on. Please, I, sorry. The only thing I was going to say about that is that, like, I don't expect Jim Crane to understand how that works, right? Because it's not, he's not a baseball guy. He's not a scout. The part that he can see is the people getting fired. The ruthlessness is the thing that would scan if you were atop all of it. And so, like, of course, you're going to wind up fetishizing it because it's the only part that you really can get if you're not deep in it. Jason, sorry. Yeah. Go ahead. What was your point? No, I mean, that, and, 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 and that is the action for them. And, like, We've all worked at a certain point of our lives for people who 
you know, were detached from the day-to-day businesses that they own, but had the um, gift for looking at a ledger and saying like, why does this person make this much money? Why does this person this? Why is this? Why is this? And then all of a sudden they just start hacking because they look at numbers on a page and they see David Roth and they see David Roth's salary and they're not saying like David Roth is overpaid, but they're like, that's jet fuel. Like I can use that. Like, you know, that's a, that's a, that's a, that's the uh, a Mediterranean vacation right there. Like they can quantify their lives in that way. And I think, yeah, that's like the cruelty is kind of the point. Right. Or at the very least, it's like the easiest point for you to make when you don't understand a lot of the other finer stuff. Speaking of cruelty, Jason Gay, the Jets or the Giants, who's better? Oh, I like this. Who's uh, the, the Giants are better. I think I think he's I think he's right. Roth. Really? I know you, you are insistent in saying that the Giants are bad. But I'm, I'm not. I'm past that now. I think they're both the the um, the bad kind of good, but I think they're the bad kind of good right now. Like, uh, yeah, I think, I think that's right. Uh, yeah, yeah, the Jets to me seem better because I think their defense is legitimately very good. Um, I mean, Quinton Williams I mean, if, and Sauce, forget it. They're fucking yeah. awesome. And I think they're going to get better. Like, I I'm really impressed with them. Whereas the Giants, I feel like are, and I love this for them. It's the most I've enjoyed watching a Giants team. Uh, you know, in many years, but they're like, they're good enough to beat bad teams, but like neither the offense nor the defense is like actively good to me. They might also, am I underrating them because I'm, I'm scarred by that. Do you think I'm, I'm missing something? No, I think they're good and they're well coached, but Jason, I think the thing about the giants more than the jets is that I think that they're good enough now that they might be fucking themselves over. Cause they already reported this weekend that they're, trying to work out an extension with Saquon Barkley, which like yeah. he's had a fantastic season. He's earned yeah. the right, but you sign a running back to a big fat contract, you're fucked. Like that's and if they and if they re-sign Daniel Jones, because he's had a relatively surprisingly nice season, yeah. then they're double ultra fucked. So I don't I think the Giants <laughs> have almost won themselves into a corner, Jason. Yeah, but I think that they have some sort of like structural integrity now with the coaching and the way that the team is, you know, they sort of have an identity. And I think that like, you know, I'm not saying that like somebody like Saquon Barkley, you can just plug and play somebody else in that position. But I think they could have the confidence to like let a few people out into the market and try to see what they can bring back uh, without worrying about blowing the whole thing up. You You don't watch the Giants and say, wow, if not for Daniel Jones... Yeah. You know, <laughs> you know, and I feel uh, like if they brought Jones back, it would be at like some sort of discount because I don't feel like there's any other team that's going to be like upending their plans to pay Daniel Jones like Kirk Cousins. Uh, like, I don't know about the, Ra- you, the Raiders are there, man. Uh, <laughs> uh, 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 a funny thing that happened in my home a couple weeks ago my daughter's school had picture day. And she goes to a school where they have to wear the same thing every single day. And so, like, picture day was one of the few days where. She could wear whatever you wanted for the picture. And she goes up to her room and she comes down. And I'm not kidding you. She was wearing a Joe Flacco jersey. Yes. <laughs> Joe Flacco Ravens jersey. Oh, okay. Number five. All right. All right. Uh, so, you know, there's Super Bowl on that jersey. And and her mom and I were just kind of like, we're going to let it happen. Because it's just going to be a great story to tell yeah. years from now, right? Why you have this That's uh, laser background like the, with the Joe Flacco jersey on? It's fucking it's great. great. I have, especially, I mean, again, I don't have kids. But, like, I will, if I see somebody walking down the street in a jersey or a jersey that seems, like, kind of old or, uh, like, well-loved even, 
I will do the thing where I look back to see whose name is on the back of it when they walk past me. So the idea of a child wearing a Ravens jersey, like people will have forgotten what number Joe Flacco wore in time. And so the idea of like 10 years from now, you're looking at the laser background elementary school picture and you're sort of like, is that a... So who was that? That was uh, that was Mark Ingram Jr. Like who who, who's you, who are you wearing? So you're saying that in your travels, if you're walking around, you see somebody wearing like a Sixto Lixano like jersey that you will like leave whatever path that you are on to follow them. I will not follow them. I will. So okay. I have, there's rules. There's. I'm happy to explain them. Uh, I will not approach. The one time I ever said anything to somebody about the jersey they were wearing, a guy was wearing a Tadahito Iguchi npb jersey like not a white Sox thing like it was like the occult swallows or whatever okay. and we were both at the dairy case at sea town and i had to be like i really like your tadaguchi jersey man and he's like oh thanks i got it but otherwise i would never uh but there are times where it's been really uh difficult for me there was a guy i saw him a couple times in the neighborhood he worked as a mover and he was moving stuff um in and out of a home and he would wear a yancey fig pen steelers jersey and it was really difficult for me not to be like, that is tight. Like, I really respect what you're about. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I didn't do it. One, uh, one you more. Get in the, oh, go ahead. In New York, you get, you get the occasional jersey. Of like Because both the Giants and Jets, but especially the Jets, have had a lot of, like, tail end career stars. Yeah. And, like, so, like, you know, you'll be walking around Brooklyn. You'll see somebody walking around with a LaDainian Tomlinson, like, yeah. Jets jersey. like Far Jets a... jerseys. Some... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, just, like, whatever the opposite of Proust's Madeline is, that, like, you see that you're instantly transported back to, like, a very rainy day in 2011 when you have a brutal hangover. Uh... <laughs> I mean, you're watching LaDainian Tomlinson rush for 2.8 yards per carry. <laughs> yeah, exactly. uh, I got one more sports question for you guys before we uh, remember a guy. Uh, Jason Gay the World Cup begins this weekend. Holy shit. Mm. Uh, and the United States, uh, the men's national team, I would argue the most important game they have in this World Cup is the very first game they play on Monday against Wales. Do you think that our boys get out of their group and into the elimination round or not? Is it coming home? Yeah, is it coming home? <laughs> I have to say that in an American accent. It's coming home? <laughs> uh i think they 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 will encounter serious headwinds fellas uh lads um i feel like uh this is a young team this is a team that has had quite a bit of uh you know challenges going into this world cup certainly getting back is an accomplishment not a small thing but you know they will be facing some heavy heavy uh competition i think that's a very i think that's a very motivated wales team um but uh i think it'll be interesting to see what the country will be like the day after thanksgiving where you have this usa england thing sort of sandwiched between thanksgiving and the ohio state michigan game and like what kind of like national moment that will be for sports tv you know like it will it be like a huge deal do you think i think so i, I think, think so. so i think it'll I, be it's morning deal. television yeah and i also like it is the one day of the year. I mean, I guess it is Black Friday, but I, it is the day of the year where, like, if you're going to be home on the couch watching bad television, it's like a gift from the gods to have yeah. this, like, compelling soccer game. Morning sports simply cannot be beat. I feel yeah, like that's, a, that's the real ang angle there. Is they, it? they kick ass. Roth, do you think they're getting out? I actually think they do. I think they do the one, one, and one thing 
where you sort of back out of the group. I think that's what happens. I'm just going by what I've read that Patty's written. And it's the sort of thing where it's weird. It's Patrick Edwards been writing the little sort of like, who is this men's national team guy explainers on our website. And I, you know, have read them with interest, but I feel like it's the sort of thing where I have like a, a pretty decent individual understanding of a lot of the interesting players and yet no idea if the team is any good or not. It seemed like they were playing very, very poorly right before all of this started. So I don't have a, a lot of faith in them. And yet it doesn't seem like they're very obviously drawing dead, you know, sort of pool of death type shit. So yeah, one, one and one doesn't seem based on my idiots understanding of this does not seem impossible. Um, but yeah, everything I've read about the, the Wales team suggests that that is not the, the game they're going to win. Uh, let's, uh, let's remember a guy and in honor of you, Jason Gay, a fellow mm. bike guy, much longer a bike oh, guy well. than me. Your guy of the week to remember is Floyd Landis. You remember that guy, oh. Jason Gay? <laughs> of course. Well, I, I, I talked to Floyd many times. Yeah. Oh, he's my brother. Yeah, yeah. sure. <laughs> Good guy. Partied hard. You had a great time with him. That's great. Uh, I mean, fascinating guy. You know, sort of grew up in Lancaster County. He was grew up in a Mennonite family where he was like forbidden, you know, typical like technologies of youth. And, and but he became this championship mountain biker, then was recruited to race road bikes, was part of the U.S. postal team. And then, you know, that's all she wrote. He was, uh, you know, part of that just, you know, syndicate of doping that brought down the sport, brought down Lance Armstrong, and he was kind of the whistleblower in the whole thing, but kind of a tragic career because if you remember, the thing that really brought him down at first was getting caught on his own. This was after, you know, Postal had broken up and he was riding for a team called Phonak. I, I guess you're like, you're remembering too much of this guy? Is this no, what's no, going not on? at all. No, 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 that is the point. This is the perfect uh, segment of the show. Like, yeah. Oh, okay. Everything you got. Why else would we have you on? He was riding for a Swiss team called Phonak, and he was the leader of this team. And it was his chance, you know, once and uh, finally to prove his medal as a team leader. And he kicked ass and he won uh, a Tour de France. And yet soon came a test, uh, a positive test for testosterone. He was stripped of that uh, and he was scandalized and had a real hard time returning to the sport and sort of in exile began the wind down of that whole era because he came forward and he started talking about the things that had been happening in the sport for a very long time that people had been suspicious of but there had been this omerta for so many years about talking about peds was he the first post lance tour winner if i have that right or is that incorrect lance won in 2004 floyd won i think in 2006 oh so oh, do you have it in front of you no, I do you have it in front? Of you? No, because usually what um, happens is I like you hear me typing in the background. I look it up, but listen, yeah. I love it. it yeah, um, I want to. I want to say, can I look it up? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You do it. Yeah, you do it. While you do it, uh, Roth, I'm gonna ask you the fun bag question, which sure. is from Elena. She says, "My husband and his family are long-suffering, but also newly insufferable Bills fans, and his aunt loves to give us all manner of team paraphernalia." She most recently gave us a bag of local snacks as we were departing, which include a bag of Bills-themed Tostitos tortilla chips. They're just plain chips with the team's logo, but also has a recipe on the back for beef-on-weck nachos, including horseradish cream sauce and au jus, which are supposed to dip into it. I understand the desire to appeal to a region's weird food traditions, but this legit sounds awful, right? Roth, would you eat beef-on-weck nachos with Buffalo Bills tortilla chips? So... The short answer is yes, I would. 
Fuck yeah. <laughs> yeah, the long answer is I feel like there has to be a better way to use that au jus, though. I feel like it's not salsa. Because that's... Au jus is just liquid beef juice. Like, you don't dip a chip... In, it's like be like dipping a chip in, like, water, you know? Like, consistency-wise. I don't know that you... But that said, the other stuff, if it's got, you know, beef and uh, horseradish cream sauce on top of chips, like, I would eat as much of that as physically I could. I would you do the same, Jason Gay? I don't know what the question was. I was looking up old Tour de France winners. <laughs> oh, oh, who did win that Tour oh, de France so, right after? doing their actual work. Uh, Lance won his Lance won his seven in, in a row in two thousand five, and and yes, uh, Floyd won the or quote unquote won the race in two thousand. Oh, oh, I knew it. I was right. Yay! Good job. Yay! Drew, that, I just nowhere. stuck it to the haters and losers. So that is <laughs> Drew. You do look very fit and thin. And are you going to shave your legs? What's the I'm, deal? I should. Right. I don't have a singlet yet. I am. I'm in the best shape of my my life. But uh, I did. I did read something you wrote about like the shortwear situation. So you haven't gone full chamois yet. You refuse. Like you're still doing the. Uh, Chamois underneath shorts. Yeah, thing that I have. Do. Yeah, I have the compression shorts underneath uh, the regular shorts, and it's fine. Like I, I do think if I went around with just compression shorts, like as nice as I look now, it's still a relative nice. You know, like I'd still look like. Yeah. Like if I see another middle aged man in the compression shorts, I'm like, <laughs> loser. <laughs> so you want to leave something to the imagination. The key is to never stop. To just keep riding by people yeah. at all times. Never, like, like I, 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 somewhere along the way of my cycling life, I lost the confidence to walk into a coffee shop in my like clickety clack shoes. Like I do not have that body or pride anymore to be able to do that. Confidently. I used to like think that was perfectly acceptable behavior. Now I'm shocked that I did it. Sometimes when I'm riding the bike, I think to myself, and quite earnestly, I'm like, I am a fucking athlete. But that's it. That's that's as far as I take it. Uh, but this, you also do you ever feel like a, a, a pure melding of man and machine? Oh, yeah, I do. Like I feel like <laughs> I can commune with the bike. Like it started when I realized, like I could sense when the tire pressure was low just from how the seat felt on my ass. And I was like, oh, okay. The bike and I, we're talking to one another now. We, we, we're on the same wavelength. So yeah, there is that kind of nice sort of jujitsu there. I don't like, I don't take it to, I don't fuck the bike or anything like that. (laughs) (laughs) But there are people who, who, there is the case that it is, is top five human invention, the bicycle. Yeah. Oh yeah. It rules. It's, I mean, I don't even like riding bikes necessarily, but it's a sort of like, to create something like that, it's uh, pretty elegant relative to m- pretty much anything that we've come up with in the last hundred years or whatever. And on top of it, not really improved upon in a hundred years. No. Materials have gotten like better and you don't have the big wheel in front anymore. But like it's effectively the same damn thing. If you showed it to somebody, a bike now to somebody from 150 years ago, they'd recognize it. Are you pro e-bikes or are you philosophically against e-bikes? Very pro. Okay. Very pro. It'd be earnest for a second. I think that the big thing about it is that it's gotten people on bikes that ordinarily wouldn't do it. And I think that like it's been really good for people who just, you know, either have spouses, partners, friends who like ride bikes and they want to be around them, but also people who need a, a adaptive assistive technology. It's been an incredible thing. I've talked to people like Parkinson's who like, you know, I don't know if you've heard this really going into the earnest category, but like That's all right. the people who are suffering from Parkinson's have significant um, benefit from second. And it's something that you can do extremely well. Davis Finney, who is a 
former American champion who's been with Parkinson's for a very long time has talked about like cycling is the one place where he sort of feels very normal physically and e-bikes have only added to that satisfaction. And then you incorporate the fact that you can go into places now with mountain bikes and an e-mountain bike is pretty insane. If you get a chance to do that, no. <laughs> I would, I, I would, I, die. Can, I would die. It's not a motocross bike. It's not, it's not the kind of thing where like it's yanking you up the hill and stuff, but like, it takes something that is a huge, stressful, disturbing experience into something much more pleasant. And I think it's just like, I don't know, it's awesome. Like, you know, you think of like all the people who like go around the world and like, you know, climb up mountains in France and Spain uh, and feel they couldn't do that can now do it. I think it's an enormous benefit. That's great. Well, now you get yeah. to answer a question from Evan, Jason, which is, do you ever feel like someone... Uh, if someone kind of suspicious behind you, you spend the next five minutes walking around like Jason Bourne. And then when you turn around uh, the corner five minutes and realize that uh, they never actually followed you around that corner, the giver, like give her turn secret agent mode, like, and, and like pretend you're being hunted by the <laughs> Russians or anything like that. No, no. But to keep it on the bikes and the sort of pedestrian thing, I do act like I'm in secret races sometimes. Ooh, oh, like if someone passes you and you're like, I'm show that motherfucker. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, exactly. Then I'll start turning it on. And and here, even worse, <laughs> I'll be like, you know, get into like the slipstream of the like, all right, I'm going to come right around this person. Like, you know, I'm making the pass. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I like Roth. Um, if I have a hoodie on and I have the hood up and I'm walking down a city street, I like to pretend that like, I'm a fugitive on the lamb. And, yeah, you're but, being identified through like David Strathairn is seeing you on security yep. footage and be like, that's him. So I do a thing where like, like you ever like put your hands like real deep into your pockets, like, like, and you're like walking like, like, and you're like, you make sure like no one can see your face because you have the hoodie on. You're like, ah, no one can see me. Yeah. I mean, that's do you kind think of that a very New York thing for me, but yes, I've, I, all of what you said. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Sadly, what's your, Drew, do you, do you, do you ever have the, the feeling through that? Like you, like, if you're like, go out for coffee in the morning, you just sort of put on casual wear, maybe got a hat. I don't know if you're a hat guy. And you just kind of like a little bit incognito as if you're like Drew the celebrity, you know, go going out on the town and like you might get snapped by Us Weekly, you know, that kind of look. Like, I feel like that's a whole thing now that like everyday people kind of dress like they're celebrities. Yeah, like when Madonna used to jog around the Central Park Reservoir or whatever, like that that's... I don't need to disguise myself from my public. Yeah. Do you ever have like a 300 pound bodyguard jogging behind you? Like, <laughs> that would be great. like, you know, I do have moments where, uh, I think to myself, like, like if someone like looks at me or something like that, I'm like, D are they recognizing me? Cause they, they know who I am. And then I think to myself, you're such an egotistical prick. And then I stop. <laughs> what thinking. are the odds of that? Brandon Nixon, Chantel Holder, are our producers, Nora Ritchie is our executive producer. Our theme song is by Kirk Hamilton. You can listen to ad-free episodes of The Distraction only on Stitcher Premium. Thanks to Roth and me, you can get free months of Stitcher Premium right now. Just go to stitcherpremium.com and use the promo code DISTRACT. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe wherever it is that you listen. And subscribe to Defector.com too while you're at it. And of course, Jason Gay's book, I Wouldn't Do That If I Were Me, that's on sale now everywhere books are sold. And he is eminently readable at the Wall Street Journal, the best sports section in the newspaper game today. <laughs> Jason Gay, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you very much for having me. Always a pleasure, guys. Yay. All right. We'll see you guys next week. Goodbye. Cheers. Bye-bye. Cheers.